people of God in Christ, uh, next Sunday, as I mentioned, the Lord willing, we will uh, sit together at uh, our Lord's table and uh, receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. So let's let's go to God's Word this morning uh, to look more in depth at one of the passages of Scripture that records how Christ instituted the uh, the sacrament for us. The Lord's Supper is not like operating an automobile. That probably sounds like an obvious and even silly thing to say, but the sacrament is not like operating an automobile in this specific way that you can drive a car without having to know how it works. You don't have to go to mechanic school to learn how an internal combustion engine works. You don't have to understand how the suspension system works or how the car gets started, or how and why turning the key turns on the engine. In fact, now in the, in the newer, newer cars, you don't even have to turn the key. You just have to have the key and then push a button and, uh, and the car uh, will start for you. How does that work? The, the mystery deepens. So all you have to do is get in the car, start the engine, put it in gear, and off you go, benefiting from the mysterious workings under your hood. Not so with the Lord's Supper. We do need to know at least a few basics, but also the more we know and understand how the sacrament works, or better said, how the Holy Spirit works through the sacrament, the more we will benefit. This conviction and understanding is one thing that that came out of the Reformation. Before the Reformation, and and possibly even yet today, the church claimed that that all that was necessary was for people to come and, and be there, participate. They just had to turn the key and push or push the button and drive. In fact, uh, they just needed even to be a passenger in the car. But the church coming out of the Reformation said, no, the people themselves need to know and understand what is happening in the Lord's Supper, how it works, why it works, and and for whom it works. And so if someone doesn't feel like they are gaining much benefit from receiving the Lord's Supper, perhaps the duty falls to them to study more, to learn more, to gain a, a better understanding of the Lord's Supper. And this can be part of our preparation for the Lord's Supper each time that we return to God's word, especially to those passages of scripture that instruct us regarding the sacrament and and either learn more or at least remind ourselves how the Lord's Supper works that we might be more richly blessed. Let's do that this morning by looking at Luke 22, verses 14 to 23. Here is Luke's account of Jesus instituting the sacrament for the church. And perhaps on the most basic level, let's simply point out that this is why we call it the Lord's Supper. The sacrament is Jesus' Supper. And we do it as the church still today because when Jesus instituted his supper, he made it clear that he was issuing a command for the church thereafter. That's why we call it the, or that's why we call the Lord's Supper an ordinance. 
which, which in everyday language means a law, a, a rule to be followed, a thing to be done. And our Lord even commanded that this be done by the church and within the church until he comes again. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll be looking at, at uh, a few verses from 1 Corinthians 11 as well. But Paul writes there, for, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Unless the Lord comes again before next Sunday, we will have another opportunity to sit together at the table of our Lord. So looking at Luke, 2, uh, Luke, Luke 22, 14 through 23, let this be the first point, unity in the Lord's Supper. Verse 14 records, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. The words, and the apostles with him, make the emphasis. Even more, Jesus tells his disciples in, in, in verse 15, which is before we started reading, I have earnestly, or no, actually this is within our text, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And it's a theme in this passage that, uh, that follows the, the just earlier, here's the part that does come from before our scripture reading, it's a theme that, 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 that follows the just earlier account of Jesus giving instruction for finding a place for them to eat the Passover together. He said in verse 11, Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So, so the thing to see is that Jesus did not just issue instructions for how the Lord's Supper was to be celebrated. Instead, he gathered them. He brought them together, and they together with him celebrated the first Lord's Supper. That might seem like an obvious point, but it's an important one. And this is one of the things that that upset the Apostle Paul the most about how the Corinthian church was celebrating or mis-celebrating the Lord's Supper, that that there was no unity in their celebration. Going back to 1 Corinthians 11, he writes in verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So here is Paul making it clear that the Lord's Supper has a benefit. There is an intended blessing for the church in celebrating the Lord's Supper, and part of that blessing, at least, depends upon the unity of the church in the celebration. For in the first place, when, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, wrote Paul. And continuing his rebuke in, in verse 21, he writes, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So we can see that that things were way out of hand within the Corinthian church, even to the point of people getting drunk as they celebrated the Lord's Supper. But, But as we think about that, is it not striking that Paul doesn't rebuke them explicitly for their drunkenness, but for the lack of unity among them? 
And then in verse 33, he writes, by way of application, So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Together. Together is the key, says Paul. Celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And what are the applications for us? The point is uh, not necessarily to change what we are already doing, but rather to understand why we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do. If someone were to ask you, uh, why do you, why do you do it that way? We might only be able to point to tradition. Well, it's, that's the way we've always done it. But that's not good. That's not a good answer. We ought to understand why we do the things that we do and to understand from God's word. First, we do not celebrate the Lord's Supper each for himself or herself. There are disciplines that can and should be carried out individually on a personal level, but the Lord's Supper is not one of them. There are disciplines that can and should be practiced within the home, at the family table. But the family table is not the Lord's table. The sacrament belongs to the church. And the instruction of God's word is that the church together should celebrate the sacrament, not in small groups, not in Bible studies, not in youth groups, but by the full church together. That's an important word, again, together when it, when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And, and while we may not even have thought about celebrating the Lord's Supper on our own, apart from the full church, yet hopefully this, this point will make us more conscious of being together as a church and doing what we do in the Lord's Supper as one body, sitting together at the table of our Lord Jesus. Second, even as we celebrate the the Lord's Supper, even as we take the bread and eat and take the cup and drink, there there is a reason why we do so together. Because it emphasizes our unity as we are all served and as we wait for one another, as Paul instructs, and then we eat and drink at the same time. Does it have to be done this way? Maybe not. But the point is that there's a good reason to do it this way, a a reason that we ought to know and understand. In the previous chapter, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, Paul even writes these instructive words, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. But the last thing to see regarding unity in the Lord's Supper is that... uh, is that uh, the call for physical unity and and what we might call relational unity is really based upon the spiritual unity that the church enjoys with Christ. The spiritual unity of the church in the Lord's Supper comes from our unity with Christ. The point in Luke 22 is not just that the disciples were together, but that they were together together. With Jesus. 
They were even together because of Jesus. Jesus gave the instructions for finding the place, and the disciples carried out those instructions. But it was Jesus who was gathering his disciples. We need to see that. So that Jesus reclined at table and his disciples with him. And again, Jesus said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And the same is true for us, that, that there are various means by which we, we, uh, we have been gathered together to form, uh, to form this congregation. But Christ, by his word and spirit, is the one who has gathered us, such that our unity as a church is based upon, and we might say flows out of, our unity with Christ, and therefore our unity in Christ. And that really puts the one who serves, uh, who serves at the Lord's Supper, in, 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 a, in a unique and weighty position. We should all, both pastor and people of God together, we, we should recognize the weightiness of the, of the calling of the pastor who must stand in the place of Christ at the Lord's Supper. Luther trembled as he performed the Eucharist for the first time, and, and that was because he, he understood at that time that the bread and the cup were miraculously changed into the physical body and blood of Christ. The bread and cup became, in, in his understanding at that time, became the flesh and blood of Christ. And so he trembled because he, he understood that he was, he was touching God. He was, he was handling Christ. But even for a pastor of the Reformation, to stand in the place of Christ is a, is a high and, and heavy calling. The same is true, of course, in the preaching of the word. Uh, what mere man is worthy to handle the word of God? Our shorter catechism even says that the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and, and comfort through faith unto salvation. But in the Lord's Supper, we are together with Christ just as truly as the disciples were as our Lord instituted his supper for us. Next, let's consider the sign of Christ's body. And I am going to uh, combine uh, the next two points together under this one point. So really the next point is the sign of Christ's body and blood. Luke 22, verse 19 records, and, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20 speaks of the cup and how Jesus said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other gospel accounts, it's more explicit. This is my blood of the covenant. So this is my body, Jesus said of the bread. This is my blood, he said of the cup. So we must note the way Jesus spoke of both the bread and the cup. Of both he said this is, not this is like or this represents. 
And this is why the medieval church uh, had, had come to understand that, that somehow, by, by way of, of a miracle performed by the priests, the bread and cup become the physical body and blood of Christ. But the reformers, again, said, no, that can't be right. That can't be a right understanding because, because then you have idolatry, or at least the temptation toward idolatry with the people of God bowing down, worshiping Christ through a, a physical object. And that, of course, is, is what had come to be the case. And yet Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, so that the, the church in the Reformation and, and since the Reformation has taught that the best understanding of, uh, uh, is, is, is of a spiritual presence of Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper. The, the bread and, and the cup do not become physically the body and the blood of Christ, but there is, there truly is, a spiritual presence of Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And the word to use for them, for these elements, then the bread and the cup, is, is to call them signs. Signs of Christ's body and blood. How about the word symbols? Um, there, there are some uh, who use the word symbol, even within the Reformed Church. They, they do use sometimes the word symbol to refer to the elements of the Lord's Supper. But, but more generally, it is the word signs that we use. Uh, a symbol... Uh, the word symbol isn't the best word because a symbol doesn't necessarily carry the meaning of what it symbolizes. A good example would be the bald eagle, which is a symbol of the United States, especially for those who are citizens of the United States. But for others who are not citizens, the bald eagle is, is a bird. There's nothing about its appearance that says the United States. It's only that the bald eagle has become, has come to symbolize our country. But a sign, you see, a sign carries within it the thing that it points to. The bread of the, of the Lord's Supper is flesh-like. Uh, and, and, and even more obviously, I think, the cup, the, the wine or the juice, whichever is used, it, it is blood like but even still the point is is not that bread and grape juice uh, always make us think of the body and, and the blood of of our Lord instead it's it's within the sacrament in the sacrament itself that these elements become signs of uh, uh, of his body and blood which is which is why at least uh, in our way of doing it, the, the pastor says something to the effect of, uh, we now set apart these elements from their common use for their use here in the sacrament. The point is to say again, out loud, what we understand is, is happening in the Lord's Supper. The point is to be very deliberate and, and intentional about what we are doing and uh, to make the Lord's Supper a very unique event. We're not at the breakfast table eating toast and drinking grape juice. We are at the table of our Lord eating the flesh and drinking the blood of our Savior. 
We are remembering his sacrifice for our sins and being assured that his sacrifice was for us. That is, for our benefit, to our advantage. His sacrifice is uh, is an unspeakable and eternal blessing for those who believe in him. And thus the reformers came to understand that the elements of the Lord's Supper are, are not automatically, we might say, the body and blood of Christ, but only those who are eating and drinking in faith feed upon Christ himself. Someone who, who doesn't understand the gospel, someone who, who hasn't grasped the, the teaching of God's word, uh, that the sacrifice of Christ was an atoning sacrifice. Uh, that he was suffering and dying in the sinner's place. Uh, That person who does not understand does not eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. Neither does the person who maybe understands the gospel uh, on the level of theology, but hasn't come to believe it for him or herself. Such persons not only do not receive the body and blood of Christ, but Even more, they should not eat and drink the body and blood of Christ because that would only mean that they are eating and drinking in vain. It would would dishonor Christ and and it it could very well give them a false assurance of salvation that, that somehow, because they participated in this spiritual exercise or this religious rite that they are now safe from the judgment to come, when they yet remain in their sin, because they are yet apart from Christ, because they have yet to look to him with a saving faith. Otherwise, a couple points uh, worth noting, uh, or at least one, I think I have one or two here. Um, First, with both the bread and the cup, Jesus gave thanks. Have you ever thought about that? He gave thanks for them, for the bread and the cup, before giving them to his disciples. Uh, Here is the aspect of thanksgiving in the sacrament. Here is the same message we hear in uh, John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God gave his Son have you ever thought about that? That the, that the way in which Jesus instituted his supper for the church echoes the words of John 3.16 because, because to give thanks to God is, is, uh, is to acknowledge that God has given it, whatever you're thanking him for. To, thank, to give thanks to God is to say, really even to declare, Father, I know, I am aware And I am humbled that you have given this to me. Jesus gave thanks for the bread. And he gave thanks for the cup. And he did so so that we, as well as we celebrate, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we would would give thanks for the body and the blood of Christ. His Father had sent him and sent him for this ultimate purpose to die, to make a once-for-all sacrifice that would show and prove that God is just and that would turn 
the judgment of God away from sinners as it fell upon him instead, surely we must give thanks for the gift of God's Son. Just to clarify, the sacrament is not firstly our opportunity to say thank you to God. Remember the direction, as we say, of the sacra- of both sacraments, of both the Lord's Supper and baptism. The direction is from God to us. God is is matching the proclamation of Christ in the Word with his proclamation of Christ to us in the sacraments. But the point is that as we receive, let that be primary, that as we receive, because that's what we're doing in the Lord's Supper, we are receiving, not primarily offering to God anything, but receiving. And as we receive Christ from God, we surely must do so with thanksgiving to God. Here I think about the old tradition of, uh, of the family at dinner time. It used to be that um, as the food was set upon the table with the, with the family gathered and seated around, it was the father who served the food. You ever seen this in, a, in an older movie perhaps? It was the father who, who served the food. And why was it done that way? Well, it demonstrated that the father of the family was the provider. He may not have prepared the food, but as the provider of the food, he was the one who served it. Now, does it have to be done that way? I don't think so. But, but as we receive, surely we ought to remember from whom we received it. And no matter who serves the food at the family table... We ought always to give thanks to God before we eat. And just so, in the Lord's Supper, let us receive the bread and the cup. Let us be assured of the sacrifice of Christ for us with thanksgiving to God. Finally then, and briefly, betrayal at the table. The account of how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper includes the words of Jesus, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. He was referring, of course, to Judas Iscariot, who was even one of his disciples, and yet Judas betrayed him in the end. And so by these words and and, and how this happened, we, we hear a warning, do we not? And the warning is this, to sit at the table of Christ is not necessarily faith. Faith is required if the sacrament is to do good and not harm to the one who receives and eats and drinks. And so we, we fence the table, as we say, we, we make it clear that, that the person who is not a believer should not eat and drink. But fences can always be climbed over. And, and we don't put barbed wire along the top of the fence. And we don't do that because we can't. So that it's finally each person's own responsibility to be truthful. First of all, to himself or herself. So let it be known that the Lord's Supper will not save us. The bread and the cup are signs of Christ's body and blood not some food that has power in itself to save. Faith is needed. Faith in Christ. 
But before faith is needed to eat and drink at the Lord's table, faith is needed for salvation. So we close with the call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. If you you haven't yet, take up faith and live by faith from this day forward, trusting that Jesus died for you. He died for your sins. And if you don't feel like you understand it yet uh, uh, sufficiently, uh, uh, if the cross yet seems strange to you, leaving you a stranger to the cross, well, then then get with somebody. Uh, talk to an elder within the church. But, but get with somebody. Study and learn the word. Gain understanding of the gospel. And don't rest until you can come to the Lord's table to rest. There remembering what Christ did for you. And there being assured that he is your Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us, even commanding us, the Lord's Supper, your Supper. Indeed, help us to understand it. Help us to begin by understanding the gospel and and give us faith so that as we come to the Lord's table each month, we we can come each time understanding better what is happening here, why we are doing this and and what we are to gain from doing it in the way that your word prescribes. The Lord grants us knowledge and growth in knowledge. The Lord at, at, at your table grant us to remember, to believe, to be assured of your sacrifice on the cross in our place. In your name we pray. Amen.